0: I'm going to ask you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. This is Matthew chapter 5. We'll be reading from verse 17 to 20. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. If you're able to, I ask you to stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word. We do this because this is Holy Scripture. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Here now is the word of the Lord. I am reading for this initial passage from the New Living Translation. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I have not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. Not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Please be seated. A rather ominous statement as we begin this third week in this long series of messages from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We started this series with an overview on January 8th, and then last week we focused on the passage that was immediately prior to today's reading. We focused on the passage about being salt and light, in which Jesus emphasizes, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now today, verse 17, we turn to the focus of of this message, which, as it's worded in the classic translation, says the following, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. A couple of weeks ago, we spent in that overview message, we spent a fair amount of time to explain Jesus' teaching really connected with the everyday people of his time, both Jews and Gentiles. Many of those Gentiles were from the Greek and Roman culture. But his teaching was fairly offensive to the leaders of the temples and those groups known as the Pharisees. His teachings here in the Sermon on the Mount is what drove many of those religious leaders to try to trap him. They asked him trick questions. And eventually it was they who insisted he be put to death. Not just a simple execution, but the worst form of execution that Rome used for its worst criminals. Those people, those Religious leaders, they saw Jesus' teaching as being against their Jewish law from the Hebrew Scriptures. Hebrew Scriptures being the Old Testament. They saw it that way because they had lost their focus. They had forgotten why the law was given in the first place. They loved the rules more than they loved the one who gave the rules. Now, I'm going to use two terms here on this next slide, and I'm almost hesitant to use the terms because they have a very different meaning today than what they might have years ago. But 2,000 years ago, the Pharisees and the leaders of those temples would have not viewed these terms the way that we do. Here are the two terms. There it is. Liberal and conservative. Now, obviously, these terms don't line up with the way that we understand them in today's political debates. When you think about it, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day wanted to keep things the way they were, which is a a classic definition of a conservative, somebody who wants to conserve things. It's hard to um, understand how they would have viewed Jesus because Jesus says we now have a new covenant and it's going to be available to all who believe, not just Jews. It's kind of hard to imagine Jesus as, quote, a liberal But in his day, he was the one who, in the eyes of the religious leaders, challenged their understanding of Scripture. Now, the meaning of these two terms has even changed in 250 years here in America. I'm pretty sure that 250 years ago, our founding fathers would have been viewed by the Church of England and by the King of England as liberals, because they would be classical liberals who wanted to expand things. Do not confuse that term with what we would call today a progressive modern political liberal. Two very different understandings. But what Jesus is saying to them is he's saying don't put me in either of these boxes. He's saying to them, you misunderstand what I'm teaching. In fact, you have it backwards. I haven't come to replace the law. I've come to fulfill its requirements and to fulfill it on your behalf. Now that's a pretty strong implication of at least a couple of different things. For one thing, the teaching of the Hebrew scriptures are not under attack. Jesus says that repeatedly. But here's the thing. It's now going to be available, salvation will be available to all who believe, not just those who are born as or or who convert to be Jews. Oh, and by the way, Gentiles who come to believe, they don't have to become Jews to receive it. They have to repent of their sin and believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the Messiah, the very Son of God who's come to fulfill the requirements of the Jewish law. Something that very often we lose lose our focus on is that in the Old Testament, believing Jews, true believing Jews, were saved by grace through faith in the Messiah who was to come. Today, Gentiles, for the most of us, that's you and me, are saved by grace through faith in Jesus who is the Messiah, who has come, and who is coming again. But this idea of fulfilling the law, there's a Greek word in that particular passage. The Greek word is pleru, and it it comes from um, the idea of filling up of a shortfall, completing of something that was previously begun. The idea is that Jesus, the Messiah, who was prophesied throughout the Old Testament, He has come, and he is now here to complete what was started way back in Genesis. He's come to fulfill that promise. But a truly saved believer is secure in their salvation, and yet God's still working, conforming them more and more into the likeness of his Son. So sometimes people have trouble with this issue. And I think it's because they confuse three different terms. So let's give a brief mention to the three terms. Justification, sanctification, glorification. might say, well, what are those three? Well, justification is the moment you first truly believe, you you stand justified before our holy God. We're justified by faith. Okay? Often it's worded as it becomes, just as if I had never sinned. Our sins are washed away, which I believe was one of the words of our opening hymn this morning. Now, sanctification is from that point on through the rest of your life. Now you're in a different walk, saved by grace. You're in a saved state, but we are still sinners. We still struggle. So we're now in being sanctified. We're being conformed more and more to Christ's likeness. Glorification refers to one day in eternity in the presence of the Lord. We receive glorified, resurrected bodies. And so that's the distinction between those three. You might say, before you're saved, after you're saved, but still alive, and then after you've passed on into the Lord's presence. would be very broad ways of looking at those three terms. But the Jewish leadership of Jesus' day had lost their way, and they had fallen deep into something I talked about the last couple weeks, legalism. They overlooked that their salvation was also by God's grace. It was not by their works, at least not their salvation. They lost the distinction between justification and sanctification. Does that make some sense? So when Jesus says, think not, I am come to destroy the law of the prophets, I have not come to destroy but to fulfill. When he says that, he uses a phrase, and it sounds almost Shakespearean. Almost sounds Shakespearean. He says, think not. It's it's a term in aorist tense, and it refers to a, a past action. That's that term pleru. And this method of writing is a a way of heading off potential objections. Jesus wants to be certain nobody misunderstands what he's about to say. He's telling the disciples and the larger crowd that's gathering that what he's going to tell them shouldn't be taken that he's destroying the law or replacing the law. Those listening to him should recognize that we can't fulfill its requirements, so he's going to fulfill them on our behalf. But which law, you might say, what's this talk about law? Well, the law of the prophets would refer to the whole of Scripture they had at the time, which would have been the Old Testament. Jesus is essentially saying the following. He's saying, everything that has been written by those prophets is eventually going to happen. I'm not changing any of that. But the point is that Jesus is not only ushering in those prophecies, he is the usher spoken of by those very prophecies. But I want to ask you to think about occasions in which you say something and the person you're talking to completely misunderstands what you're saying. Jesus was struggling with some of this. And at the time, there was basics of communication theory at work then, just like there is today. When I say something to you, there's at least three possible messages. What I intended to say, what I actually said, and what you think I said. There's at least three messages right there, maybe more. The other person hears your words through a different filter, maybe through a different set of beliefs. And so the meaning they receive is different than the meaning you may have intended. But 2,000 years ago, those Jewish leaders heard everything through their own filter, and they were rather fixated on maintaining their role, maintaining their status, so much so that when the Messiah that they're watching for comes along, they couldn't even recognize him. This is one of the reasons why Jesus says, I'm here to fulfill these writings, not to replace them. And then in verse 18, there's an interesting passage. Jesus says, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. That's from the King James Version. In modern English, what he's saying is every single aspect, no matter how seemingly minute or minuscule, every single aspect that has been written by the prophets is eventually going to be fulfilled. In this matter of jots and tittles, what those are is the components of the Hebrew lettering system. He's speaking with a directness. He literally says everything's going to happen, but he's using a certain amount of figurative language by referring to those little dots and strokes that compose the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. It's like he's looking them in the face and he's saying, you guys seem to be confused with what I'm teaching you. But don't be confused. Everything that was written in the Old Testament by those prophets and everything that's written in the Torah and all of these things are going to still take place. But you must understand them in the right context. You must understand them in the right context. And then here gives you some context here. Verse 19, Jesus says, Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so... He shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven, but whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. By the way, when he says break one of these commandments, that's an interesting one. I looked that one up because the English word break comes from a Greek term, luo, and it means to loosen. So in everyday wording, it would be, you don't even have to break them. You can just stretch them and loosen them up and you're still violating what God has said. Sometimes we get kind of loose around the edges on some of the commandments. That's something that happens when Jesus comes along. Remember, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, and he mentions it in a couple of weeks, one of the sermons, is about where he says, it's been written that you shall not commit murder, but I'm telling you that if you harbor anger in your heart, you've already done so. His point being, nobody ever killed somebody else unless they had a seething internal anger for a long time to them. And so we'll talk about that in a few weeks when we get to that passage. But what Jesus is really saying is that if you even water down the law and teach others to do the same, you'll be called the lowest in God's kingdom. And if you obey and teach those laws, you'll be called great in God's kingdom. But then he gives in verse 20, he gives this warning, and I'm going to paraphrase here. He says, but I warn you. Unless your righteousness is higher than the righteousness of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It would be almost as if Jesus is saying to to them, and remember, they couldn't get there on their own righteousness. What makes you think you can get there on your own? It's, It's a very direct statement that Jesus is giving them. And altogether, these four verses, verse 17 through 20, is a rather powerful defense of the reason why Jesus has come. What he's really saying is, everything that's been written is still going to happen, don't think it no longer applies, don't teach anyone else it no longer applies, if you do that, God is not amused, and you can't be righteousness enough, righteous enough on your own. The only way to gain that is by God's grace. And Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of the promise to send a redeemer. So there's a lot in those four verses in a way that only Jesus could do. He's just taking the issue head-on, and he corrects them. Now, very often when we see film portrayals of this, we always see Jesus as so soft-spoken and so gentle. And I'm guessing that in this setting here, in the Sermon on the Mount, that was fairly accurate. I'm guessing that he was very kind and gentle, especially to those who truly were listening. They wanted to hear what he had to say. I'm also guessing that he was much more direct, intense, even fiery when he addressed the religious leaders of his day. Now, I I may be a little bit unfair on this, and I have to admit that, but so many ministers today have created this caricature for themselves in which they really look and act like what those Pharisees must have been. Here's the thing, is they've created this caricature (laughs) <laughs> in which they would be described by a series of hyphens. Let's see if I can get these all right. Long-winded, arrogant, condescending, black suit and tie-wearing, pulpit-hammering, brow-sweating, loud mouth, fire-breathing, finger-pointing, mean-spirited, alliteration-dispensing, stereotype, loudmouth, revivalist, preacher. There we go. I actually got most of them to come out. That's a lot of hyphens. And yeah, that's a lot of baggage that I have with pastors like that. I, I don't see a whole lot of shepherding in there. And it's funny, because they've been in these roles far longer than I have. But I I really believe if Jesus walked in the door of some churches today, he'd talk to them the way that he spoke to the Pharisees of his day. And he would be justified in doing so. Because in too many cases, some Christians today, including the men in those pulpits, have become modern-day Pharisees. Lord, help us that that never is the case here at First Union. Now, that being said, let's talk about this law, because we hear about the law of the prophets and the law of the Old Testament. Often we don't realize there's actually three categories. There's ceremonial law, there's civil law, and there's moral law. And you might say, okay, what's the difference here? Ceremonial law is understood that it's specific to Israel's worship in the temple. Leviticus chapter 1 gives a number of examples. The Pharisees often accused Jesus of violating Ceremonial law, for example, when he healed on the Sabbath. Generally speaking, people who today profess Jesus as their Savior have viewed the ceremonial laws don't specifically apply because they were specific to Jewish temple worship. However, the principles behind them still apply, such as to worship a holy God. Those principles still apply. And a way to look at that is that freedom from ceremonial laws doesn't become a license to sin, because the principles behind them still apply. Now, civil law is another one. That was specific to daily living in Israel. Deuteronomy 24 speaks of this. But the principles behind the laws are timeless, and they should guide our conduct. Jesus guided, Jesus demonstrated these principles by his example. But in terms of civil law, think of it in our country today, whether it be in our nation or in our state or locality. We're bound by the civil laws of our state and nation provided that they don't require us to violate something that Scripture says. We don't always like them, and we even have the right to work to change them, but we're bound by them when they still exist. You may not agree with a law that says you must have your seatbelt on when you're driving your car, when you're riding in your car. And you can work to change that law. But in the meantime, if you're driving without your seatbelt, you might get a ticket. Okay. We can object, but there might be a cost to it. That's an example of civil law in which it applies to us even in instances when we don't like it, provided that it doesn't require us to violate a clear command of God. The last category, moral law, such as the Ten Commandments. These are direct commands of God. They really require our strict obedience. Since we can't follow them without breaking them in one way or another, that's because we're fallen sinners. That's why Jesus came to fulfill those requirements on our behalf. But today, so many people, so many people are increasingly willing to basically rewrite God's moral laws. They opt for reinterpreting them. This is how our society has managed to accept a different, and in my view, an unbiblical view of looking at issues from how marriage is defined, to issues like when life begins. But as a result, many people, because they want to be good, and they think they're being honorable, they basically deny that they're in denial, because they deny that moral law has its roots in the biblical Ten Commandments. That's a mistake that we we can't make. They are not the Ten Suggestions. God gave them, and he was very specific. And in some ways, the argument's been made that they're given so that we recognize that we can't follow them all the time because we have a sin nature and because we're sinners. And that's all the more reason why Jesus came, to fulfill that on our behalf because we we can't. Now, to give you just a little more perspective, do you recall that um, so many of these passages are what they call antithesis passages? Jesus says, it is written this. But I tell you this, in the next six six passages here or sections in chapter 5, Jesus is talking about different topics like murder and giving and adultery and divorce and vows and revenge and other matters. In these examples, it reveals our real struggle with sin and it reveals why those laws were given. In verse 19, the way he's describing this, some of the people in the crowd who were listening to Jesus talk, and the multitudes as they gathered, (laughs) they had become experts at telling others what to do. But they missed the central point of God's laws themselves. Jesus made it clear that obeying God's law is more important than just explaining it to others. It's easier to tell others what to do than it is to follow it yourselves. Isn't that the truth? And then in verse 20, That rather ominous warning, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case, in no case, not a lot of wiggle room there, in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. We need to remember what those people had become like, these scribes and Pharisees. They were so exacting in their attempts to follow the laws. In fact, one of the things they literally did is they built three or four levels deep of rules so that you had to break all of those man-made rules before you could ever even get to considering breaking one of the Ten Commandments. You might say, well, what's wrong with that? That's prudent. In many cases, it is, setting some barriers around yourself. But here's the problem. They got to the point where they loved their rules more than they loved the reason why God gave the rules. And they loved the position it gave them more than they loved the God who gave them the rules. They had become legalists, And that's one reason why I caution so much against legalism. And the irony is, is that in the dichotomy of conservative and liberal, in their time, the Pharisees would have been the conservatives, even though they were the ones who had departed from what the meaning was. That's the bizarre thing. The words don't mean the same thing that they once did. Most of us today, we need to recognize That the weakness of the Pharisees is they were so focused on their outward appearance of obedience that they wouldn't allow God to inwardly change their hearts or their attitudes. They looked very holy, but they were far from the kingdom of God. And I think the meaning for us today is God judges our hearts as well as our deeds. And the reason why is because it's in the heart where faith takes root. It's in the heart where faith takes root. Jesus is saying we need a different kind of righteousness One that comes out of a love of God. Not just a more intense version of the Pharisees' efforts at obedience. Because those things were just external compliance. It wasn't something that took root in the heart. Our righteousness must come from what God does in us, not what we try to do in ourselves. Our righteousness is God-centered, not man-centered. Our righteousness should be based on our reverence for God, not from approval of other people. And our righteousness should go beyond keeping the law. But be focused on living by the principles behind the law. These are important differences. And in some cases, they feel rather subtle, but it's a matter of the heart. It really is a matter of the heart. Jim, are you saying only intentions are what matters? No, I'm not saying only intentions matter. I'm just reminding us that intentions do matter. Intentions do matter. So these are the kinds of things that we'll be talking about in the next few weeks of this series. And some of these messages, by the way, are hard. Some of them are controversial. Up to this point, I've stayed with relatively self-topic, self-top, safe topics since I've been with you. Relatively safe topics. The next several weeks aren't all that safe. So pray for me. <laughs> pray for me and pray for each of you that God's going to speak to your hearts about these things. So, let's wrap this up. Oops. There we are. Jesus is telling his disciples and the larger crowd, the multitudes, he's telling them, don't be confused. If you're confused, it's because you're not able to see something. You're not able to see who he really is. He's not here to throw away everything they've been taught. He's here to move ahead now with the next phase of God's plan, to send a Redeemer, to send the Messiah. And by the way, he's not here to lower expectations And lower standards, that's one of the most common criticisms that people give when they're facing times of change. They love the standards more than they love the reason behind the standards. There's elements of legalism in that. And Jesus is telling them he's not here to play by the rules that the Pharisees and the high priests have set up, because their rules have actually distorted what the intention of Jewish law was. He is here to remind everyone that God's in charge— Not the high priests and not the Pharisees. Jesus has come to do what only he can do and come to do what those Pharisees and high priests could never do. He's come to fulfill the requirements of the law on our behalf. There's just one more thing. One day, at a time, only known to God the Father, Jesus is going to return. We can debate about when that's going to be. We can debate, is it really soon, or is it a little while off? And is it pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? We can have those debates till we're green in the face, and I'd love to have those discussions with people. But only God the Father knows. Even Jesus says he didn't know. He said not even the angels in heaven know. We don't know when he's coming. We do know that he is coming. And so one day we're all going to stand before God. Every one of us. And we're all going to belong to one of two groups. Those who have been saved by his grace and cleansed by his blood. And those who have not. Phrased differently, there's a group who's going to hear Jesus say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. And there's a group who is going to hear, Depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. So which group will you be in? That's a big question to ask yourself today. Which group will you be in? How can you know? Well, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And if I'm sounding a little bit like my Baptist background, forgive me. I like to pick on the Baptists. But I agree with 99% of what they teach. Here's the point. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament law on our behalf. You might say, he doesn't just hold the key. He is the key. He is the key. The question that remains is, which group are you in? And since he is the key, have you let him turn that key to unlock your heart so that once and for all you've reserved your place in eternity? That is the question. And it's a question that only you, only you can answer. With that in mind, will you please pray with me?